This is the introductory talk to this retreat together. And we would like, Jamie and I would like to um, divide the talk really into two, two areas. One, a talk about Dharma and its applicability in our Western setting, and I would like to focus on that this evening. And that will be followed by the basic ethical guidelines for practice and, and all that is implied in that. And the reason for dividing the, the talk up this evening in this way is that we have just completed a three-day retreat together and, and some 30 people, I understand, are continuing into this session here. And then there are a number of you, two-thirds of you, who are just beginning the retreat together. Some of you I know already, of course, and are old friends. And some of you who are coming into the situation for the first time. And hopefully this talk will have um, at least a little usefulness for everybody. Some, some time ago, some, some year, years ago, I had a friend who I would see once a year, a man, a very gentle and thoughtful man, a man named Philip Toynbee, a writer uh, in England, whose father, Arnold Toynbee's person who was and still is re regarded with much affection in England and elsewhere and became well known as an historian. An historian which took into con who took into consider consideration the totality of the planet and the various civilizations which have come and go over centuries. And in one of his essays he wrote People will ask, what, is the, what was the major event of the 20th century? And some will say, well, perhaps the, the awful sadness of the, of the world wars, the First World War, the Second World War. And others may say the, the, the splitting of the, the atom uh, and the release of nuclear energy. And he said, he wrote that he didn't think that that would be the case. And his answer, his response to what would be the major event of the 20th century was rather surprising. He said it would be the bringing of Buddhism from the East to the West. And Those of us who are least trying to make a small contribution to the teaching of the of the Dharma, of course, perhaps have and do have much feeling and love and respect for the tradition of the teaching and 
for its continuity on our planet and for its transmission as it comes from the, the east to the west. And certainly it seems to me that some of the aspects of the, the teaching have an import, have a significance to them. And in saying this, I would say, in the, in the light of this, it, that it's very un-Buddhist to think of converting people to Buddhism. It's just not the style. And there is a tremendous effort going on in this world to convert people. And we have seen in the West and rather noticeably here with some of the more fundamental, fundamental Christian traditions, and we have seen in the Middle East tremendous effort to convert the hearts and minds of men and women to a system of thought, to a set of beliefs, with all the, the dogma and the ritual and the pressure which can accompany it. And the practices, the practices here, truly have nothing to do with that. It doesn't matter within, I would say, within the genuine spirit of what the practices are, and some might say what the Buddhist practices are, to have any interest in converting. To even to have any interest, really, in what you believe. What counts in this long-standing tradition is not what you believe, but who you are. And there is a world, please, very important this, there is a world of difference between believing and being who you are. And being in who you are means that it's rather important and irrelevant whether one attaches a label to oneself and says, I am this, or I am a Buddhist, or I am this, or I am that. And we don't have any of those concerns here. And we're not also within the practice of spiritual life and using these long-standing practices concerned with whether there are any hot hells or cold hells after death, and whether there are any pleasant deva realms to space out in after we pop off. <laughs> you know, there, there's sufficient, I would say, heavens and hells already on this earth. Why we need to bother ourselves about what's going to happen in a few years' time? And so the practice here and the emphasis here is not so much in the future, it's not so much in securing for oneself a, a comfortable state. The practice is very much emphasizes who we are and what's happening for us right now. And I rather like what the, the Buddha himself said when he, was, when he was asked this question which so often preoccupies people about the future and life after death and all the speculation that can go, go along with it, you know, whether there is 
a heaven or a hell, or whether it's total non-existence, or whether one is likely to be reborn as a whatever, as a snake or a cabbage or something, I don't know. <laughs> and, and Buddha was asked you know, about these kind of questions, and his response, I felt, was quite an appropriate response. If there is something of that order in this cosmic uh, existence which we are experiencing, well, as you are now, then that will how it must be, in some form or other, in the future. And if one is leading a, a relatively virtuous, wholesome life, a relatively sane life, then there will be some future expression of that sanity if there is a future existence. And it rather, once again, it rather brings us back, I feel, to the, the emphasis on what's happening for us and who we are in our life today. And our whole retreat here together very much functions on that theme. And perhaps, and I'm not wishing to promote the tradition or Buddhism in any way, but perhaps what it does have to offer us It offers a certain ethical foundation and guideline for one's life. It offers well-used ways and means for depth of meditation, for real inner self-knowledge and self-understanding. And I feel offers a sensible and reasonable view of life. And I think that is the contribution that it has. And in a world where we see so much which is unreasonable, unfair, unjust, lacking in compassion, then a view of life which cares about life, inwardly and outwardly, in all its expressions, I feel is a view of life worthy of human beings. And when we speak of a view of life and that long-standing tradition in that way, speaking of a view of life which very much embraces our own life to love and care for ourselves, it embraces too life which is around us in the forms and countless expressions of others and the creatures and the environment. And to bring that into life is to bring a quality in life which this world desperately needs. So in our being here together, during these days together, hopefully it's not that you are coming here to adopt a new set of ideas or to identify with a set, of, a set of beliefs in any way, all of that seems to me rather erroneous. But rather, it's if something useful takes place here, 
which feels right and appropriate for you, which you can connect with inwardly, which helps one towards a little bit more clarity and understanding in life, then all well and good. That is the principle. So in our listening and in our connecting together, it's not in any way that there is any wish by us to foster a new set of beliefs, but rather it's one of you using your discernment and discrimination of mind and heart. And what doesn't seem useful or appropriate, let it go. Just let it sail by. And in order to have in our life the discernment and see what's genuinely useful and beneficial for intelligent life, it requires, with, within that connectiveness, it requires a lot of focus, a lot of listening, a lot of, a lot of attention. And that attention which is required is, atten is an attention which goes in two directions. And I would say both are equally important. There's the attention which goes outer, the outer listening. And my goodness me, we need, all of us need to be able and to develop the capacity to listen to each other. Think how much misunderstanding you and I experience in our relationships with each other because we can't really hear anymore. And we forget what listening really is. And, when, and so sometimes in our life we hear somebody addressing us. And we, we hear the content, what's actually going across and what the person is saying. And we can all think of examples, I'm sure, of that. But we don't actually listen. Because so often in our life, in our listening, we, we hear the words, but we don't hear through them. We don't hear behind them. We don't connect with what's happening inside of the person. And we just respond or react on the face level. And hence we sow the seed from so much mistrust and confusion and disconnection and discontent with each other. Because listening, outward listening, requires such total attention and total energy. And the other direction, equally important for us, having the same kind of significance and ramifications, is inner listening. And that's a great skill and a great art. And we forget to listen to the deeper intimations of ourself. We forget to, to listen to what our heart is saying, what our feelings are saying. We forget to listen to sometimes the voice or the intuition or the insight which comes through and tells us something. 
And every day our being is telling us things. But if we don't listen, how on earth are we going to know what the inner life is telling us? So our practice, one might say, the focus of the days here is very simple. It's inner and outer listening. In coming to a place and a, sit and a situation like this, it certainly presents for all of us quite a stark contrast from where we have been to being here. And particularly for those of you who are, who are here for the first time, it really can feel to be, and to be in a retreat, quite a formidable activity to embark upon. And it's not unusual when a person sees the timetable for the first time, having no idea what one is letting oneself in for, that one looks at the timetable and one groans. And so sometimes within a situation like this, when there are a number of people coming for the first time, into a meditation retreat, there's a kind of collective groan. This is one of the reasons why we have silence. <laughs> 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 Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and in the situation where there's what is really taking place is quite some agree of adjustment. There's a just adjustment from a lot of activity from the doing of this, that and the other to one in which our world for a period of time is considerably reduced. And basically our basic needs and the things which we usually are involved in at the day-to-day -day level are taken care of. That includes the obvious of, uh, with regard to shopping, with regard to running a home, with regard to going out to this place and that place, to work, to, to leisure, to all the, the everyday things which one has to deal with. All of that is taken care of. The, the, the managers and the, the staff, the cooks, take care of all of the needs so that one is able to be as much as possible, meditative. You know, if we could, we'd even go to the toilet for you. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to brush your teeth. <laughs> so basically, much of this outer activities and concerns are taken care of in this period of time as a way and means of maximizing the time and opportunity to be with something which is very rare in this world, to be with oneself in an unbroken way. And so often in this world, 
so little real opportunity. And we notice even if we're living alone in a quiet place, how the tendency to fill our day up, to fill our evenings and our nights up, becomes something of a priority. And so that monstrous mach machine, the television, fills up our eyes and our ears and the newspapers clog up our mind and we do anything because it means if it's not that, it's being with oneself. And so within the context of a situation like this, much of that is reduced and we come back to who we are and what we are. And that often, very understandably, isn't easy. And it seems to me that in this world that we, many of the outer adventures, not all of them, but many of the outer adventures have been covered. You know, and there is this, I would call it only a bizarre book. I can't think of anything else to describe it. This bizarre book called the Guinness Book of Records. So presumably you're unfortunate enough to see it as we are in England. And it's a kind of litany of people who have to do something peculiar to prove they exist. <laughs> and, and there's this constant effort in life, in somewhere in the world, to embark on something to go further in some way or other than other individuals. And it seems to me that one of the gr greater adventures of our time is not so much the outer and the proving of oneself, but there's a greater adventure in being inward and seeing what that means and going on that journey and what the implications and the very real social implications of that are. And I see that's a whole genuinely a whole adventure in itself. And it's a venture which is different from the normal. The normal one has some kind of destination of where it's going to lead, what one wishes to accomplish and arrive at. But here one doesn't know. And one may have these fanciful and useless words like nirvana and enlightenment and those other funny concepts. And, and so there's some kind of imaginary idea. But actually, inwardly, it doesn't mean too much, does it? And so in turning our attention inwardly and just being with ourselves and the application of certain methods and techniques, we don't know where it's going to lead. We don't know what kind of direction it's going to take us in. We don't know the impact that it's going to have on who we are and the way that we look at ourselves and our whole relationship to life. We don't know. And that's where the adventure is.
That's where the challenge to one's consciousness is and one's human existence. Because there's no set path. And all that we perhaps have, if we're particularly new to the inner life, is the testimony of, I won't use the word, the witness, it's, witnessing is, <laughs> the Christians have coined that word <laughs> too much. There's the testimony of people, of men and women, of past and present, who say that there is something extraordinarily worthwhile in a life which gives true care to inner listening and to the depths of meditation. Something extraordinary about this journey, about this pro process inward. So we're now giving our attention to the time and the days that we are that we are here, and the, the getting in touch with our with ourselves. Basically, one might say that at the present time we are, like others too, a small group and small groups of men and women of various, shall we say, spiritual persuasions and and backgrounds, some obviously affiliated to long-standing traditions like Jamie and I and, and others are less so. But who, who, however, are people who are committed to the importance of the inner work, who see that the neglect of it is the neglect of half a life. And that therefore some balance needs to be found in our world which the inner life and the outer life find a greater balance. And that finding of that balance becomes a catalyst for transformation and for radical change which our world desperately needs. We might say we for ourselves that we have found the various meditations very helpful and useful, extraordinarily so, like nothing else ever was. We might say that men and women from one generation to another have made tremendous efforts to ensure the continuity of these transmissions. And just as it is our function and your function too in our being together to keep that continuity established within this generation and then when we fade out, move into the next generation. And in this time of giving care and attention to the practices, remembering it's the inner attentiveness which is what, it, what the heart of it is all about. The day itself is divided up primarily into three areas. Each area, each aspect of the day, supports the other. Each is equally important, I would say. 
One is the meditations themselves, both the sitting meditation and the walking meditation. And insight meditation has a very simple basis for it. And the simplicity of it, and it were, as it were, the directness of it, is its own power. And the basic message of it is sit and watch, walk and watch. Keep watching, keep observing, have faith in that till you clearly understand. That is it in a nutshell. And anything else which happens here to, today or tomorrow or through the days here keeps coming back to this simple fundamental premise of sitting and watching, walking and watching till things come clear. And they must. If you are conscious, things must come clear. And in clarity, love must flower. Now, in, the, in our day, these three areas of the meditation practice itself, that this giving care and attention to who we are and what we are doing. And we have this present moment to work with. And we have nothing else. And the present moment is more than enough. And we have, within the context of the day, as I mentioned, the talks. The talks coming and, and founded on a princi principle that if it's useful, all well and good. If something isn't clear in any way, find us, leave, a, leave us a note, give us feedback, hassle us. It's not a, 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 a guru-disciple relationship here. It's not, as, not one where someone, that we're not naive enough to think, we know you don't know. This is an insult to anybody's intelligence. But it's rather, it's coming from as much as possible from a, uh, an affectionate place inside of ourselves, being received in an affectionate place by you, in an atmosphere of mutual affection. Human beings addressing and communicating with each other and and uh, we, Jamie and I, have, of course, the enormous privilege of being able to speak for you for 40, 45 minutes every evening. And the third area, equally as important, are what are referred to as the, uh, each day, as the interviews. Now, it's not we interview you and in, in that it, we are not headmasters in some wretched boarding school. <laughs> it's not the physician's office. We're not going to pull your teeth out. So the relationship is quite different from that. It's an interview. Understand? You can put a hyphen in there. It's an exchange of views. It's a, a shared communication together. 
And that's the principle and foundation upon which it works. As what I call the old man, the Buddha, said uh, two and a half thousand years ago, he described himself as a Kalyana Mitra. That means he simply just wants to be a friend to others. And that's the, the, the spirit of our relationship together, to, that we are friends here together looking. So that these three areas constitute our retreat, the meditations, the talks, and the interviews. And that serves, historically and in the present time, as a very useful and one might say vital process for clarity in consciousness. That's its function and its purpose. So we create, we, that's the totality of us here, create a silent and supportive atmosphere for this work to take place. And with each one of us, as much as possible, giving our care and energy to it in the silence, in a very, very real way, more so than our mind can ever imagine, we give great support to each other. And if I may say, as one who has had the privilege over the last seven years of conducting quite a number of retreats in, in different place, places, some very many, very, very beautiful women and men pass through the retreats and participate in, in retreats and provide service for, for others in many ways. And all of us benefit considerably from, hopefully, from this kind of social environment. So let us, in our time that we are here finally, in our time that we are here together, let us give wholehearted attention to outer and inner listening. Let us, in the time that we are here, always remember that you and I live in this world. And that living in this world, it means that who you are affects all those you have contact with. You and I, we receive from the world and we give to the world. And our practice, therefore, is not just for you. It's a practice which, in a real sense, is for this world. And therefore, it transcends the seemingly personal significance of it. It goes much further than that. And I certainly, for myself, would not feel the love and the enthusiasm for these long-standing teachings if I felt it was I was speaking just to you and that you were just practicing just for you. Because that, in this world, just isn't the way things are. So our heart, wholehearted attention and commitment to the practice, to the inner, inner life, so that in this world peace may prevail. In this world there may be the generations of men and women who contribute in small ways to wisdom and compassion, which is the hallmark of a mature person.
May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony.